The reading this morning is taken from 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, and then going on through chapter 2 and finishing at verse 11. And it's entitled, Paul's Change of Plans. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, and no, no. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. 
The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, I pray that you would be with us now as we explore this uh, long passage together. I just pray that for each one of us, we may take exactly what you want us to hear this morning and so that it may uh, transform us and change us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you might want to keep your Bibles open as we explore this and look at it together. I wonder when you have been misunderstood. I know uh, when I think about that question, I think about one humorous occasion that sticks in my mind, a time when Tim and I went to Parga in Greece for a holiday a few years after we were married. It's a beautiful place if you've been there and there's some lovely food to enjoy. And uh, food is always kind of high priority for me on holiday. It's all about the food. Um, But one of the lovely foods that we enjoyed on that holiday was saksiki, a kind of dip made of yoghurt and cucumber. Some of you are nodding, you've had it, and mint, and it's really beautiful. But um, one very memorable evening, we had more than a little difficulty trying to order it in a restaurant that we were in. Because whenever we asked the waiter, we'd try our best to pronounce it. And um, so we'd say the word, and then he'd say to us, taxi, and then rush off to the roadside to beckon a taxi for us. And it just sticks in my mind as one of those funny occasions where we tried three times to make ourselves understood and it just didn't work every time the waiter ran off to try and get us a taxi and so much so so that in the end we gave up and ordered some olives instead. (laughs) It was safer. But the effects of being misunderstood can range from the humorous to the awkward to the downright painful and the apostle Paul knew this all too well. And our reading this morning forms part of a letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth. And he writes to them on this occasion, in this section that we've heard, responding to the fact that the church has been going through a difficult time. There's been some false teachers in their midst and things have been really tricky. And these false teachers have been challenging both Paul's personal integrity and his authority as a leader. And in this part of the passage that we heard this morning, Paul is responding to the church about the fact that he's changed his plans about when he would visit them. And because of this, they're accusing him of not being trustworthy. Paul's integrity and motives have been challenged And so he writes to them, forced to defend his honour, if you like. And he commends the church to consider that his personal life has always been honourable and that this life-changing and life-transforming message that he speaks of 
and this salvation that he speaks of is true. And so maybe as we come at this this morning, we can relate to Paul in some small way. Maybe we feel misunderstood at the moment or feel that we're having to defend our honour in some context that we find ourselves in. We're in a difficult situation at work or at home. Maybe you're having to stand up for who you are in Christ. Paul was clearly a man of integrity and so it must have been a really difficult thing for him to have to do this, to have his integrity questioned in this way. And I wonder for us, what would people say of us, that we are people of integrity, that we're people who speak the truth, that come what may, no matter what, even when it becomes really, really costly, we do that. Do we do that as individuals? Do we do that as a church in every aspect of our lives 24-7? Because when we're not living those lives of integrity, then how on earth can we expect those around us to believe in the things that we say and want to listen to what we have to say about God? So maybe like me, you can do with some encouragement as to how to go about this this morning. And I think this passage and the example that Paul sets us can help us as we explore it together. Can I have the next slide, Andy? Thank you. The very foundation on which Paul builds his life, his ministry, everything, is God. And so it must have been heartbreaking for him when he's accused of being fickle because of having to change these practical plans. And how much more heartbreaking when the people go on to argue that if we cannot trust your everyday promises, then how can we trust the things that you say about God? And in verse 20, we see Paul make a powerful assertion. He says, For no, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Paul tells the church that Jesus is the yes to every promise of God. And what Paul means here I think is this that had Jesus never come to earth then we might have had need to doubt the tremendous promises of God might have argued that really they were a bit too good to be true but a God who loves us so much that he gave his only son for us is surely quite certain to fulfill every promise that he has ever made Therefore, we can see Jesus as God's personal guarantee that the greatest and the least of all his promises are true. Because God chose to say yes to loving us through his son, Jesus, and it wasn't a vague yes, a half-hearted yes, or a compromised yes. It was a resounding yes to loving us. Yes to taking on human flesh. Yes to dying on the cross. Yes to sacrifice, yes to forgiveness, yes to giving everything he had, yes to a love that cost him everything. Because of Jesus, we can see in the words of the author Martha, Martha Dawn that God is a promising God who always keeps his promises. God is a promising God who always keeps his promises. Do you and I need to be assured of that today in whatever situations we find ourselves? That God loves us so much that he sent his only son into the world to find us. That because of Jesus, 
we have a God in whom we can trust, come what may. That because of Jesus, we can trust in his promises, his word, his plans for our lives. Do you need to know that wonderful promise that God is a promising God who always keeps his promises? But it doesn't end there, because just like Paul, we are called to live lives that speak of that same love, build lives on that same love, called to stand firm and live for Christ in difficult situations, just as we saw Paul did. And I know that in my job there's been times when I've had to do that, and that is really difficult to to stand up for what's right maybe, and especially when people don't know the whole situation or what you're doing isn't very popular with those around you. And I know for many of you, through conversations, you found, found yourselves in the same kind of situation, and maybe you do right now. And I know this morning we've focused on schools, and it seems to me that schools are an increasingly difficult place to work at times, so pressured and very, very real challenges. And so maybe you find yourself in that place. But the message is, thank goodness, and we see that through this passage, that even though standing firm for Christ is an incredibly difficult thing to do, we are not called to do it in our own strength. And some of us might need to have the reassurance of that today. In verse 21, we hear Paul say, Now it is God who makes both you and us stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And when Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit as a deposit, he uses the Greek word arabon, which means the first instalment of a payment. And so the kind of life we can live with the help and the empowering of the Holy Spirit is the first instalment of heaven, the guarantee that actually we will receive the fullness of that life one day. It's a gift, that Holy Spirit, we need to see it as a gift and God's token and pledge of greater things to come. And we are moving into that by the power of his Spirit, day by day by day, in the difficult things that we face. Maybe we need to be reminded today that we are gods we belong to him that he loves us so much that he sent his son to find us and that he doesn't leave us alone to struggle on in the situations that life brings and we face but that we do have his empowering spirit and that's at work in us to transform ourselves and the lives of those around us and the things in which we face we have the final slide, please, Andy. Thank you. The final part of this passage, again, speaks of the trouble and the unhappiness that Paul has suffered. It goes back to that. The ringleader in the opposition to Paul has been disciplined by the church, but there are some in the church that feel that it's not enough, that it hasn't been dealt with enough, that this person needs more um, punishment how easy and how maybe satisfying it would have been to agree with this for Paul and to have gone along with it, with what they wanted. But actually, Paul points to another way, a costly, self-denying way, and he encourages others to do the same. Paul has a gracious heart, and he pleads for mercy. 
for the person who's hurt him so much. He urges the church to forgive the wrong that has been done to him, the issues been dealt with, the punishment given. Let's move on, let's forgive, let's move on. Paul encourages them, now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And he encourages them to reaffirm their love for that person. Very difficult thing to do, and it can be so costly. And uh, much of the healing that has taken place in South Africa has occurred through costly forgiveness, and often the costly forgiveness shown by individuals. And I found this example yesterday, this story of uh, Mrs. Savage, and she was somebody who was injured in a hand grenade attack by one of the liberation movements during the apartheid. And she was so badly injured that she was left unable to care for herself at all day by day. Her children had to bathe her, clothe her, feed her. She carried the shrapnel of the attack in her body. But she told the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that she'd like to meet the perpetrator. She a white woman and he almost certainly a black man. In the spirit of forgiveness... She would like to forgive him. And then, amazingly, this story, she added, and I hope he forgives me. Forgiveness that's mind-boggling. And I'm sure for each one of us, if we're honest, we don't find it easy to forgive. Are we like Paul, therefore? Or are we more like the Corinthian church, to which he was writing, holding on to unforgiveness? I know from experience that forgiveness can be a very difficult thing and a costly thing to do. But maybe the reason that Paul is able to do it is that he has understood what it means to be forgiven himself. He was a man whose life was going in a very different direction until he had that amazing encounter with the living God. He had been so against Christ And yet he's offered that forgiveness and his life is transformed by it. And now he lives in the love and power of receiving and knowing that forgiveness and knowing the love of God. Jesus teaches us that just as we ask God to forgive us, we must also be willing to forgive those around us. And with every blessing that God offers us comes the responsibility to use it, doesn't it? In his book, Unbound, Neil Lozano says, Justice demanded death, but mercy provided a saviour. And he goes on to say that only through the cross can we grasp the greatness of God's love. The power of the cross is the power of forgiveness. Wounded, suffering, rejected, the crucified Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And God, through Jesus, is eternally speaking these words, isn't he? They're active and alive, never far from us. And so today, do you want to forgive? Do you need to forgive? Because the secret of forgiveness is to be found in Jesus Christ uh, crucified. It is his word. It is in his power. You belong to him and you have his spirit within you. But first we need to know and realise afresh how much we're forgiven so that we can offer that forgiveness to others. And so today I encourage each one of us to ask God for a fresh revelation of his merciful, 
costly love shown to us and to allow that to transform every area of our lives because he longs for each one of us, like Paul, to live in the love and the freedom that that forgiveness brings. Amen. <laughs>